Good evening. Could you turn with me to James chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves righteous and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We're all familiar here with the idea of a, becoming a new creation, a new transformed life. And yet often, we don't see that transformation. Maybe we feel that we ourselves have stagnated. Maybe there was transformation when we first came to know Christ. Then over time, we don't continue to see that happening. We don't feel we're becoming more like him. We keep sinning in the same ways again and again. We're frustrated. We come to church faithfully, we study earnestly, and yet we continue to drift further away from what we should be. What's the problem here? We're hearing God's word, and yet we're not becoming more like him. We can see from the word what God's plan is for us. We can see the perfect example of Jesus, and yet we continue to fall short. We don't even move in the right direction sometimes. We're not living out the word of God in our lives. This morning, uh, Tim opened up uh, the first half of, chapter James, of, of James chapter one with us. We saw there how the believers were being double-minded in many ways, trying to follow the world and follow God, which doing two together is impossible. In this passage, we'll see similar themes and threads, this idea of double-mindedness, hypocrisy and self-deceit, we'll see examples of people who are not living changed lives. But we'll also see the solution to this problem. And we'll see how we can get out of this stagnation I've described. And the cure is quite simple. As well as being hearers, listeners, even studiers, we need to be doers of the word. Simply soaking up all this head knowledge of the scriptures and theology is not going to lead to transformation on its own. We need to look intently into God's word, studying ourselves and making lasting change. This passage will show us how a Christ-like transformation comes through humble acceptance of God's word and obedient, obedient application of it to our lives. This is the central message of this passage and the most striking demonstration 
in this passage is through the image of a man looking into a mirror. Let's think about this first of all, looking at verse 22. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Here we have this picture of someone looking in a mirror and forgetting what they've seen straight away. It's always good to quickly check your appearance before you leave the house or to pull down that mirror um, in your car before you leave. No one wants to walk into work with a bit of toothpaste on their shirt or some Weetabix stuck somewhere. As silly as you'd look, it'd be much worse if you pulled down that mirror, if you'd stood in your bathroom and seen that bit of Weetabix and you'd ignored it, just walked out the door. Um, But it's worse than that. Our sin isn't simply a blemish or a small spot of toothpaste or a bit of Weetabix on our otherwise pristine bodies. In verse 21, the paragraph before this, um, our, our sin is described as filth. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Catherine, my wife, always teases me that I only mention growing up on a farm when I'm speaking in church. So this bit's for her when she listens. Um, my father had a man called John who would come and help him milk the cows on a Sunday evening. <clears throat> and for some reason, Every week, John would come in his Sunday shirt and trousers. And in a milking parlor, um, you're down and below in a pit with 12 cows, six either side, and um, how do you put this? Their back ends are pointing towards you, and often during the hour and a half, um, tails will rise and things will happen. But you can imagine after an hour and a half in this situation, he was a real sight to behold. His Sunday best, his shirt and trousers were completely covered in dung. Maybe this is the best way for us to view our sin. Not a small blemish, not a small spot. We can dress up in our best clothes, but our sin is is filthy to God. Now, could you imagine John, the milker, finishing up his work and checking himself in the mirror of his car, seeing himself completely plastered? Imagine checking his appearance, appearance, then driving away and heading off to the evening service in Tangana. And here's the big question, what's the point in having a mirror if you don't make any changes based on what you see? Is it just to stare at yourself, vainly admiring your own reflection? In the same way, what's the point of us listening to sermons, studying God's word, listening to podcasts, if you're not going to apply it all to your life? Simply studying to build up our knowledge is vain. Staring into the mirror that is the word of God, simply to admire our own face, to puff up our own self-righteousness, is completely vain. If we listen to the word, looking at our face, then go away, looking at our face in the mirror, and then go away, forgetting what we look like, we are deceiving ourselves. But the correct response is in the next verse. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Instead of looking and moving on, this person studies intently. 
They study what, he's, what they see, they continue it, and they do it. Maybe the first step in this process is to recognize what we're looking at here. We're looking, as it says, as a, at the perfect law that brings freedom. This isn't some thrown-together manuscript. It's not a textbook we need to learn off to pass an exam in uni. This is God's perfect law. And it's remarkable to have a perfect law which is absolute, which is above everything. We were at a, a humanist wedding a few months ago, and um, a short introduction told us all about humanism, and it told us that humanists aim to live a good life. But what is a good life? Where do we find it out? Everyone thinks they're living a good life. If you went out in the street and you asked 10 people, are they living a good life? I think the overwhelming majority of them would say, Yes. And even when we turn on the TV, we see conflict, we see war, persecution of minorities, or suppression of freedoms. What if you ask those people involved, the perpetrators, uh, if they're living a good life? Again, I'd say you probably would. They'd probably say they're, they're living a good life, or at least that they're working for a greater good. So, um, so we can't so you can't tell people to live a good life without defining what good is. That's why we need this. That's why we need a perfect moral law, and that's what's in front of us. This perfect law is eternal. It's a solid, eternal rock through the ages to which we can cling, not being tossed to and fro by popular ideas or trends. It speaks the same today as it did a thousand years ago. Many of us love reading books, devotionals, or sermons written by writers hundreds of years ago. The world may have changed a great deal in the time since they're written. Even more remarkable how much the world has changed since Jesus walked on the earth and since the books of the New Testament were written. Yet God's law and God's truth is the same today as it was a hundred years ago or even 2,000 years ago. But this, this perfect law is also intensely personal. It shows us the sinful nature of our own hearts, and it, it exposes us for what we are. It speaks to us in the here and now, showing us our sin and God's grace to us personally. What an amazing thing we have in front of us. And just notice another, another word in this verse, that word intently. It suggests someone really staring into the word. I wonder would you say that you stare intently into God's word uh, when you sit in church or at home. Maybe you're distracted by worries, plans for the day, or checking Rory McAvoy's scorecard on your phone. We're told to look intently into God's law really focusing on it. And since it's a, it is a mirror, we're also examining ourselves, being personally conflicted by what we read, really asking ourselves if we can say that we are being obedient to it. Yet many simply glance at what they've seen and move on. We are to look intently into it, seeing ourselves, seeing Christ, seeing his perfect law, and obeying it. We're promised blessing and freedom when we do this in these verses. 
And it's a really unusual phrase, the perfect law that brings freedom. We normally think of law in the opposite way. Laws are often barriers to personal freedom, lists of things that we can't do. Yet God's perfect law brings freedom. Through Christ, the fulfillment of the law, we have freedom from sin, freedom from condemnation, and freedom from the wrath of God. So if we want one message from this passage as a whole, it's that we are to be doers as well as hearers of the word. So how do we do this? Maybe we can, as we make notes through sermons, we can really focus on that application at the end. What am I personally going to change as a result of this sermon? How will this change what my life looks like? Maybe we should hold each other accountable in this regard. We've been convicted, say, by a sermon. We should discuss it with our friends, with our spouse, who can hold this to account a few weeks later. Have you really stopped being slow to anger? Have you really stopped being quick to anger, sorry? Have you intentionally been more generous? But what we can do in our own strength is limited. I think the first step is actually found again in the paragraph before in verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Spurgeon writes, the first thing then is to receive. That receive is a very instructive gospel word. It is the door through which God's grace enters us. We are not saved by working, but by receiving. Not by, not by what we give to God, but by what God gives to us and we receive from him. This book of James is known for being incredibly practical and full of wisdom. And it's called, called the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. And it's maybe tempting to view it as a kind of a self-help book about how to live a better life. But I think this shows us this is completely wrong. We won't be transformed to, be, to become more like Christ through personal striving alone. We have to realize that we need the Holy Spirit to transform us. We have to humbly accept the word planted in us and allow his spirit to make us new. So we have to stare intently into God's perfect law and continue in it. So we look mostly at this central image of a mirror in the middle paragraph. The rest of this passage will show us what this transformed life will look like, how it will be different to what came before. And the opening and the closing paragraphs um, show us some instructions and examples of how we are to be transformed to become more like Christ. The first verse here, for verse 19 even, um, instructs us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I wonder what kind of person you picture when you hear this. The picture I think of is someone who is interested and truly cares for others and wants to listen to them. They're other-centered rather than self-centered. And if we think about those people in our fellowship, say, who display these things, we think of people who want to know us. They ask us about ourselves, and what's more, they remember what you've told them the next time you see them. They've been thinking about your, your troubles and your problems, and they've been praying for you. We, like them, should be quick to listen and slow to speak. I wonder, are you particularly uh, convicted by the next instruction to be slow to anger? 
And the, the very next verses show us how seriously God takes anger. The first is fairly to the point. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger is just one example here, but it's up there for a reason. Partly because it's so visible to others, it's a terrible witness. We've seen a few churches uh, where the leader's downfall was due to anger. Many of you remember the saga surrounding Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church. And um, the main charges against him during the, the downfall of that, of, of that church were him being, I quote, domineering, verbally violent, arrogant, and quick-tempered. This is really the antithesis of being Christ-like. As well as being uh, so visible, it reveals a self-centeredness to our hearts. I maybe wouldn't consider myself to be hot-headed or quick to anger in some ways, but at times I'm definitely easily angered. Some days I'll, I'll come in, I'll sit at my desk, and uh, I'll look at the day ahead, look at my diary. I'll notice someone's given me a few extra things to do before I even start. I feel my blood pressure just rising a little bit. Um, and then that anger can build and build. Someone interrupts me, more jobs added on, I have to work faster, and I can feel my lunch break shrinking progressively. Why should I do this? I think, I don't have to put up with this. This is unfair, this is disrespectful. When we're angry, our thoughts are often always about our, our own personal rights and stature. And I think this shows a, a self-centeredness which is really abhorrent to God. Ultimately, in this uh, verse 19, we're being told to be more Christ-like. And we're reminded of those famous words from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's also worth, worth remembering here that the believers receiving this letter are going through trials and temptations. This first half of chapter one talks about facing trials, about being in humble circumstances, about perseverance under trial, and how to act when we're tempted. It's in this context that the believers are being told to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And again, this immediately makes us think of Christ, how he was humbled, tempted, and how he persevered under trial. So when we're, becoming, when we're being slow to speak and slow to anger, we're becoming more like him. Let's now jump to, that, to the last paragraph to see another example of transformation. These verses show us, first of all, a worthless religion, and then a pure and faultless, faultless religion. Verse 20, 26 starts. Those who consider themselves righteous and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. The religion that is worthless is that which places itself at the center. It's hot-tempered hot and loose-tongued. This talk of having a loose tongue is a repetition of a similar message in that opening paragraph. In fact, as we read the book of James, there's a further full section on devoted this subject in chapter three. And in this, this practical book, I think this shows us just how important taming the tongue is. 
there's also an element of pride, of deceit, of hypocrisy here, which we've seen in the middle paragraph with the mirror. These are the same people vainly staring at themselves in the mirror, but not doing what the law says. They consider themselves righteous. Maybe they come to church every week, they impress with their Bible knowledge, and yet their religion is worthless. They do not bridle their tongues, and their heart is revealed. Let's not fall into this trap of pride, false religion, and loose talk. In contrast, true religion is mercy and kindness to our neighbor. Verse 27 goes on. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word religion here brings up a lot of negative connotations for many. We think of maybe pilgrimages, religiously, repetitively attending services, maybe a constant routine. Maybe this is how our generosity should look. Something we feel compelled to do again and again and continue practicing every day. Something that's built into your routine. It is wonderful to perform ad hoc acts of kindness and generosity. Yet if we really value it, if we really value generosity, it should be something intentional and planned. Notice as well how it's not just thinking of orphans and widows, it's looking after them, it's active. So we should volunteer regularly in church and outside, get to know people, sit down and research where and to who you can give money, show generosity to or, or help. Set up direct debits to pay out on the day after your paycheck comes in, so you're never tempted to spend it on something less valuable. And there's an important link here between the two instructions. To look after orphans and, widow, and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The growth of generosity in our hearts can stop us from being polluted by the world. It's often hard to know how, how to be in the world, but not of the world but I think generosity is a fantastic way. We're in the world, we're interested in the lives of those in difficulty, but we're there as salt and light. It's so easy for us to be corrupted, to get drawn into materialistic striving for more and more, but showing mercy and generosity to those in need is a way to protect ourselves against this. So how do we get the motivation for doing this? this religious, repetitive work, day after day. Some, maybe even humanists, will be generous out of guilt. They believe they have much, and others have little. They feel guilty unless they're giving. Christians, on the other hand, give out of a grateful heart in response to God's grace. The parable of the unmerciful servant shows us that our mercy for others comes because we have been released from an even greater debt. Some people say they, they don't want to help those who are undeserving. I, uh, I heard a Tim Keller sermon on this recently, which made me shout out an amen in the car when going round the Stockman's Inn roundabout. When we try to, he said that when we try to make distinctions between deserving and undeserving poor, this is what God's response will be like. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow man as I had mercy on you? 
I didn't come and die for the people who were deserving. I didn't come to die for the deserving poor. There weren't any down there. I came to people who got themselves into the fix they were in. I gave my riches to people who didn't deserve it. I gave it to people who were absolutely spiritually bankrupt. I gave my riches to a lot of people who trampled upon them and abused them. See, we have to understand that spiritually, we are the undeserving poor. And the Christian's response to this is radical generosity. True religion here is overflowing of generosity from a thankful heart. So we have two examples here of a Christ-like transformation in being slow to anger and becoming intentionally generous. We saw how becoming, being slow to anger came from following Christ's example of other-centeredness. And the same way, our generosity is a direct response from God to God's grace towards us. So to close, we've been thinking about this question of how we become more Christ-like. How do we stop ourselves stagnating despite our attendance in church, our prayerful study of God's word? We have to start by humbly accepting the word planted in us. We are to gaze into the mirror that is the perfect law of God. We are to look intently into it, seeing ourselves for what we truly are. Then the most important part is to be doers rather than just hearers of the word. We need to prayerfully ask for God's help to make lasting change to our lives, to leave behind the sins of self-centeredness, anger, pride, loose talk. Then this perfect law will give us freedom. We'll be blessed in what we do. We'll find ourselves being other-focused, being more radically generous as we contemplate Christ's generosity to us. I'll just close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this perfect word we have been studying. We thank you for its power to save us, to make us new. We remember those times when we have been double-minded, when we've been full of anger, of self-deceit, or self-righteousness. We pray we wouldn't be like those looking in a mirror and straight away forgetting what we look like. We pray that we would be doers as well as hearers of the word. We pray that we would stare intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it. We pray for lives that are clearly transformed, made new in your likeness, lives of generosity, humility, and other-centeredness. Above all, Lord, we pray that we could humbly accept and submit to the word planted deep in us. We cannot do these things on our own. We pray for your spirit's power, Lord, in making us new. In his name, amen.